All right, good morning, ladies. How are you? Do you notice anything about the date up there on the screen? Does it bring you any questions to mind? How about this whole series? How about spending all that time in Exodus? Bring any questions to mind? I found that when I was getting ready for our, our, our lecture time and even just preparing for the lesson, that one discovery led to more questions. Does anybody relate? So here are, here's how I felt when I was reading about the building of the tabernacle. Raise your hand if this looks like Ikea madness to you. Yes, okay. So when I'm reading in Exodus and I'm thinking about the tabernacle, which first of all, the word tabernacle is not in my everyday conversation. So I'm like, what's it supposed to look like when it's done? And then you get all the overlapping instructions. And then in Exodus, we have it written once. You probably didn't spend as much time on this as I did, but we have one description of the tabernacle and how it's supposed to look and how Moses communicated it. And then we have another description of the tabernacle that was sort of while he was doing it and how it was to be when it was done, before, during, and after pictures of the tabernacle, which was very helpful if you understood it. But as I was thinking today, um, how many of you drew pictures in your book like you were supposed to? Not that many of you. Epic, okay, all right, you know, represent. And how many of you would say you'd like to have your pictures up here on the screen today? I have a friend who's asked me to teach her sign language. And we were talking over the phone and I, I, I'm telling her, you know, put your fingers down, no, no, toward your body and away from your, and then wiggle them, wiggle them like this, no, wiggle them, you know. She said, could you just send me a video? And I thought, well, there's a thought. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, correct? So we're gonna have lots of pictures today, cause why not? But first, let's start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are not uh, the author of confusion, that you um, intend for us to be um, in your realm of uh, operation and you give us all the tools necessary to do so. You have not left us alone or without experts or people that can help guide us on our way. Lord, I ask your Holy Spirit to be that expert for us this morning clarifying anything that we've read or misunderstood, helping us to ask questions that lead us to greater um, wisdom and also a greater desire to be like you and near you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for being the tabernacle on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and give this morning. Amen. All right. So yes, beyond Ikea came a lot of questions for me. And here are some of the questions that are going to guide this lecture for you. Okay, hold on. Why did God choose these symbols in the tabernacle? Why do, those, why do those that followed hard after him still screw up and miss the core message? What's the tent of meeting and how does that compare to the tabernacle? And what's the tabernacle and how does that compare to the temple? And what does the, are the methods of sacrifice? And why do they get to eat some things and burn up others? And who get to eat what and why? And what is the sacrificial system today? That was a big one for me. Where's the sacrificial system today? I have Jewish friends. I have a Jewish sister. I grew up in a multicultural town where we sang dreidel songs right along with Christmas songs. But I've never heard anybody slaughtering animals. Where's the sacrificial system today and what happened to it? How many temples have there been and how do they cease to be and, and why? And what's the difference between a modern Jew and an ancient one and what are the distinctions that we see today? And that's just the short list. 
So I hope you're coming today with questions because I think the questions lead us to great answers. And here's the first question. On the first screen, I gave you the date in Hebrew, Heshvan 75779. Let me ask you something. What would happen if we all used a different time system? Like if we said, for example, a day begins or ends at sunset and starts at sunrise. Or if we said the beginning of time is having to do with when we know the earth was formed precisely. Or the beginning of time is when a person was brought into this world, but does it mean when they were conceived or when they were born and what if they were premature? And where do we start the clock? And this has been a problem for all time. And so while I was studying for this, I kept running across confusing times. Our modern timetable, which has now been accepted, as we understand it, as you and I've understand it, we've called it AD, correct? And AD does not mean after death, even though we've always said that. In Latin, it means adeno domingo, the year of our Lord, or the year of the Lord. And the question is, what does that even mean, the year of the Lord? Our Lord Jesus born, well, was it as his annunciation? Because that was pretty important. Or was it the year that he was actually born? And do we know that precisely? Can we count backwards from, from scenes and rulers? Oh, how about the rule of, when it was the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, or in the era of? You can see how challenging it is just to get your mind wrapped around what we're even talking about as far as time goes and how long ago things were. In um, English, we say BC is before Christ, which makes it all the more confusing that AD doesn't mean after death and that we use a Latin term for. We use a Latin term for present day. We use an English word, BC, for before Christ. Now I wanna tell you something. There was no time zero, okay? So if you had a timeline B.C. and A.D. would crunch together on one. There would be ones and no zeros. So this is a mathematical conundrum. So speaking of questions, here's more and more questions. Our current dating system was devised by a guy named Dionysus Exegus of Scythia Minor, good friend of mine. He set it up because um, previously we were counting time according to a despotic ruler in the rule of his time and he was martyring Christians and we were counting time from his rule which he said I don't wanna give him the credit of that and he said you know I'm gonna start with Easter and I'm gonna count backwards and I can figure out Easter because I can figure out moon cycles and we can go through the, to, to the astronomy of it to figure out when Easter was and will be and then I'm gonna pick a number and say that was number one. So. The fact that the whole world seems to use the same system now, if you think about it, is quite amazing. And I don't know about you, but I've never given it a second thought that we would all be counting time the same way. And we are not, but that gives us some, in, um, some um, perspective on why things were difficult to pass on, um, even through, throughout generations, because we might not always be seeing the same time as the same thing. Now we use BC, um, it's, you'll see it, especially if you're reading non-Christian literature, as BCE or before the Christian era or before the common era, and AD is being called the common area or era or CE, also the Christian era. Those are some non-biased, um, some PC ways to tell time. All right. 
in, in the time of Moses, where we were in Exodus, a lot of us uh, spent some time in Exodus um, looking at those things, and I just began to think, what is it about the tabernacle that distinguishes it from the tent of meeting? Because there are parts of Exodus that put them as the same thing, but they are not exactly the same thing. After um, Moses has brought the um, Hebrews, the Israelites, out of captivity, and they're in the desert, and before he's gone up to Mount Sinai, he was meeting with the, t- the Lord in a tent of meeting. He had an encampment. They arranged the encampment for all the peoples and, and based on their tribe. And then outside the camp, it tells us in Exodus 33 that he would meet with the Lord. What's interesting about this, as far as Exodus 33 goes, we hear about um, the chronology of getting the, the Ten Commandments and setting up the tabernacle, and then in first, and then in Exodus 33, and it says something to, to the, akin to, Moses had been in the habit of meeting with the Lord in the tent. So if you read sequentially, you might wonder where this came from. So Moses, when he needed to hear from the Lord, he was able to hear from him one on one, there was a cloud that covered the entrance to the tent. The whole encampment knew that something was being communicated to Moses for the sake of his people, and that's what the tent of meeting looks like. Now, we're gonna start here in Hebrews 9, and um, next week, you'll be getting into some things about the sacrifices. We have to touch on them a little bit. I'm not gonna go in depth about them, but just read along with me in, in Hebrews 9, one through five. Now the first covenant, which Rhonda talked about last week very well, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. That's the tabernacle that we talk about in Exodus. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lamp stands on the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Oh yes, we can. And we're going to. I think this is a grand overview. This is when you get the Ikea box, and this is the after picture. But then we're going to get that set of Um, parameters and measurements and how-tos and into what's that's coming up. So we're going to spend a little time here in um, in Exodus Exodus discovering what is all about, what this is all about. So if the tent of meeting 1.0 was exactly what I showed you before, a tent with the cloud of God covering the entrance and and Moses meeting with him one-on-one, the tent of meeting 2.0 is the tabernacle that is described similar to the tent of meeting in that it's still a what? Tent, everybody say it. How many of you live in a tent? Yummy, how many of you camp in a tent? Okay, so if you camp and you take a tent or even if you're in a camper, the most important thing about that camper and all the equipment that you bring is that it is portable, am I right? And of course, in the tent of meeting and in the tabernacle here, as it's described in Exodus 32 and 40 and 40 verse one, those two words are interchangeable. In fact, they're sometimes separated by a comma, the tent of meeting, comma, the tabernacle. So the the meaning of the tent of meeting has expanded since it was established um, by Moses. 
All right, so the tent of meeting has a, has a courtyard, it has an entrance gate, and it has a building which is separated in the middle by um, uh, another veil. The outer court was about 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. And if you haven't studied cubits, here you go. Here's your English system of measurement. I don't even know how many meters that is because I never learned that. Again, one reason to get all of our measurements on the same page. So the outer court is about 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. The tent was always pitched toward the east. That means that doorway that you're seeing opened at the bottom is going toward the east, and so is the doorway inside the tent of a holy, the holy place and the holy of holies, always pitched toward the east. And the children of Israel could get into this outer courtyard through that gate. All right, we know that, here I'll show you the, the overview. In Exodus 35 through 40, that's five full chapters. You get a lot of discussion about this. If you just read bits and pieces, you'll find that, it, like I said, he gives a plan in one set of um, verses and the fulfillment or the being fulfilled in the other. So here we are. We've got an altar of burnt offerings on the front. We've got a bronze laver. We've got inside the holy place, a golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, and then within the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, our author in Hebrews 9 just mentioned that the altar, that within the Holy of Holies is the incense. Look at this picture. Do you see the incense within the Holy of Holies or outside of it? The altar of incenses is in the holy place, and the only thing in the most holy place, or the holy of holies, in this diagram, and in, ex and in Moses' description, is the Ark of the Covenant. So at some point, some of this stuff got moved around, and I'm gonna show you the history as I have learned it over the past um, six weeks, and last night from 3 p.m. till 2 a.m. as I was studying this because once again, I find as soon as I get into this, there are too many things I don't know. And then I have to go find out about that and decide whether it's worthy for you to hear from me this morning. <laughs> so I, um, I praise God that this is such a rich, full, always um, opening to us text that we never can grow tired or too knowledgeable to read it. All right, the Ark of the Covenant. Not, the, not Noah's Ark and not that movie, but something interesting about the Ark of the Covenant is that again, it has these poles for, because it needs to be portable. I know you know this. Over the top is the description of the cherubim's wings. If you look up Ark of the Covenant, there are about 10,000 versions of this that have been drawn. Mine doesn't count and it's much better. I just didn't wanna sh show off. But uh, on the top, the, the lid, of course, comes off. On this, and then there's a place called the mercy seat on the lid, which we understand the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God would rest there and bring his mercy there. So within that container are the, the tablets of the Ark of the Covenant. You know that, the Ten Commandments. Now, there was a first set of Ten Commandments, and then there was a second set of Ten Commandments. The first set... God called Moses up into the cloud in the mountain and handed him this information over a course of days. Moses ended up staying there for 40 days. 
and he was inter, uh, interacting with God one-on-one. -on -one. There was a contingency around him that could hear and see what he, they could hear what was going on, but not see the Lord and not, not see Moses interacting personally. And he comes out of the, of the cloud and he has with him, written by the finger of God, tablets of the basis of what is going to be the law, the 10 commandments upon which all the other laws will be built. And you know the story, he comes down from the mountain and while he's gone, literally everybody goes wild. They go wild and crazy and they fan off into other kinds of worship because they're just desperately trying to make sense of their life here. They've been left from their captivity, but at least they understood it. Now they're out here trying to reinvent themselves. They have one leader, it's Moses, and he takes a 40-day vacation. And when he comes down, the place is a wreck. And so what does he do? Well, he gets really mad. There are some swords, there is some cleaning up of the perpetrators, there is a plague, and there's the smashing of the first set of tablets. So obviously the first set of tablets are not here in the Holy of Holies. What happened was, was that Moses met with God again, and Moses said, come up, chisel me two tablets, and I'll use my finger to write the, the, the law, the Ten Commandments again. And he brings those down, and those are in here. Now, if you would have asked me, I would have told you that's the only thing that's in the Ark of the Covenant. But it turns out there are a few other things in there. You know what they are. They are a bowl of manna, which tastes like coriander, sweet, uh, a sweet grain of some kind. We know about manna from the desert from Exodus 16, that God provided for all those years for there to be enough manna for every day, not to hoard it, to take enough for tomorrow when it was the night before the Sabbath, and it would not spoil or get um, eaten by maggots or become in any, in any way diminished. But the thing is, if people tried to hoard on a different day, it always became inedible. So the glory of God that he is feeding us is in this golden bowl of the manna. This obviously means his bread lasts forever. It is not going to spoil or fade. This is a treasure box of things that will not spoil and fade. And then Aaron's staff. In, in Numbers 17, we see Moses and Aaron setting up what's to be policy and procedure. We have judge, we had Moses making judgments and we have the, the, the priesthood going to Aaron and his line, which is Moses' brother. But there's contention like, how come everybody in your group gets to be the leaders? And so each of the heads of the um, 12 tribes bring their staff and place them before the Ark of the Covenant and the one that is chosen is the one that buds. In fact, the staff is a living staff, come to life, functional living, bringing life to the people, and that was Aaron's staff. So here we have commemorated the Aaron's staff, which is made of almond wood and is budding flowers and almonds is in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, everything in, and this of course is in the Holy of Holies. Now everything in the um, uh, tabernacle has quite a lot of value, which explains why it gets pilfered and stolen and it's a treasure that has to be protected for a really long time. We know about some of the value that each of these metals have. This is a table of showbread. This is for each tribe. There is a, a loaf of bread each week. And when that, uh, another week comes up, the priests eat the bread that was there and the fresh bread is labeled, laid there for, for um, God. 
we um, understand that we're not exactly feeding God, but we are telling him you are our source of food and we are honoring him back with that. This is an acacia wood table overlaid with gold. Um, it's about three feet long and a half a foot wide. Make that with your hands, three feet long, half a foot wide and two feet high. Is that better than saying in cubits? Can you see it? Three feet wide, that's two and a half feet high. That's about the size of this. That's just about this size, but fancier, okay. This is the place where David, after having been away and coming in and needing food, goes into the temple and eats the consecrated bread. This bread is only meant for the priest. David eats this bread, the priest actually gives him this bread. And this is something that Jesus references later, that the bread is for the people of God. All right, so opposite that is the lampstand. This is an oil lamp, not candles, they're oil. It's filled with a pure olive oil that is also described at great detail in our reading. I want you to see the difference between those two lampstands. First one to tell me what's different, raise your hand. There's some flowers, anything else? Okay, say it. On the one on the right, where the scripture, Exodus 25, 31 through 40, how many light spots do you see? And on the one on the left, how many? All right, the one on the left is a menorah. You've seen a menorah. This is the menorah that's used uh, by Jews to commemorate the oil that continued to burn for eight days in the temple. Um, the oil that continued to burn for eight days when there wasn't even enough really for one day. This is the miracle that they call the miracle of lights or the, uh, that we call Hanukkah with an H or Hanukkah with a CH. And that first uh, in the middle is, um, is a light that can light the others. So the eight days are represented there. But the light that's in the tabernacle is seven. That's the complete number seven. And this is the seven that um, God designed for the temple. So there is some difference. That was new to me. Anybody new to you? Good, all right. So here in Exodus 26, one through 36 is a long discussion of all of the curtains. That's 36 verses. And it's a description of their fabric and their size and the loops and the poles that hold them and where they'll be, where they'll be suspended and they'll be between columns and the columns will be on gold uh, on silver stands and I was utterly confused so I went to the internet <laughs> and I think this is actually just a little bitty model which um, but you can see the various kinds of fabric that are there so I'll just list them for you here. He says, twisted linens for 10 curtains with cherubim patterns which surround their tabernacle. So I'm assuming that all around the tabernacle are curtains that have angel or cherubim patterns written on them and they're made of fine linen. And you can see the ones in the front there. Um, then the overlaying or the tent covering, so the tabernacle itself is covered over the top with other kinds of fabrics and textiles. Goat hair skins for the tent over the tabernacle. See the white one in the middle and then the red dye ram skins. Ram skins dyed red and then sea cow hides. So some sort of um, aquatic animal um, whose hides are covering. We're not gonna go into all the symbolism there and there's plenty of it and there's plenty to be heard, but you can see this is no like pop-up shelter. 
This is not, I'm going on a trip and maybe I'll take enough. My daughter's going to Canada this week. She's not a camper, she's going with great campers. And they said, you know, just bring things that you can layer and a, and a pack that you can carry. And she said, could you exactly tell me what kinds of things I need to layer? This is not part of my everyday leisure. And you know, how small should the bedroll be? And what should the temperature value? Everything about this was an effort for her because this isn't in her norm. I gotta think this doesn't look that much like the tent of meeting anymore. This is complicated. But the same goal is, is there in that in the holiest part where, where in the plain tent of meeting people did not intend to step foot near the presence of God, same thing is true. The presence of God is going to reside here on purpose, and not just with Moses, but on behalf of all the people. And he's going to go with them because he is a portable tabernacle. He is going to live among them in a tent, separate and holy and sacred, but he's also going to go with him, which just makes me so happy when I think of Jesus. There's so much imagery which of course our, our, uh, our author did a great job of showing you. The altar of the burnt offering, see those horns? I kept trying to figure out how to draw those things. How do you draw horns coming out? Well, that's to strap the animal who's being sacrificed there. And some offerings are burnt to completion, as in to burn up all of the sin. And some offerings are burnt to edibility. And the, uh, the uh, meats were, were eaten. Um, Modern Jews are quick to say that they were not sacrificing needlessly. They were sacrificing with, with food involved. You may talk more about this next time. Um, we have the bronze washing laver, and if you see laver and think of laboratory, that's the where you're gonna wash up to go. It's made of bronze, which is, um, I don't know, they're making sinks and things out of that now because they're antiseptic. It's a pure, it's a purifying uh, metal. Let me see if I have a note on that, I think I do. It's a symbol of judgment. Uh, this according to Kay Arthur, she says bronze is a symbol of judgment. This would have been four feet high and when people brought a sacrifice of reconciliation or an offering, which would have been an animal, it was tied to the horns. The bronze grate covered the seven uh, and a half foot box, no, covered the box below in which the coals were added to consume the sacrifice, yeah. I don't know why I have seven in there, but so. Um, so, okay, so we got our bronze washing laver. We've got our altar of incense. Okay, this is interesting. This is also made of gold-covered wood. So we see that image of gold-covered wood, which means the huma humanity and the divinity in one. We've got the humanity in the wood and the divinity in the gold. It is higher than the other two altars standing at three feet high and even higher than the ark itself in order that the fragrance of the ever-burning incest would waft perpetually. And we know that the incense uh, recipe is very complicated as well and is not to be duplicated. It's to be made by skilled perfumers, but it's not to be sold on the market as the, the great new fragrance. Um, of course, we don't use a lot of incense in this church, but I've been in traditions where we incense is a lot of part of the worship. It gets your attention. Whether you like the smell or not, whether, you, whether you're comfortable with the, with the ritual, um, God was comfortable with it, and he said the smell of the incense, the beautiful, intentional, pure smell of that sweetness rising up to heaven is the way our prayers rise up to heaven as well. 
It's a beautiful image, which is why it's taller than the other altars, so it will rise up. Now later, we see that incense is sometimes in censers, you know, those things that you wave on a, on a, on a chain, and um, that may be how the incense eventually ended up inside the Holy of Holies, is that it was um, wove, waved over um, the Ark of the Covenant. All right, so I asked the next question. Okay, so, all right, a lot of talk about the tabernacle. We're in relatively modern times in Hebrew, and we're looking backward and, and forward at the same time in Hebrews. So lots of talk about the tabernacle, not so, not, no talk about the temple. And I was, my question was, well, where the tabernacle by now is not even there. Jesus, we understand, did not go to the tabernacle. He went to the temple. So I was curious, how did we get from tabernacle to temple? And we know that for the main reason, it's because King David wanted to set up a permanent place. He said, I'm living in a permanent house. God should have a permanent house. It should have a house that's at rest. This should be the end of our traveling because now we're here in the promised land. This is where God intended to take us. We had to go through a lot of trials along the way. There was a lot of conquering and being concrete and persevering and the, and the tabernacle went with us. But now we're here and we don't want a portable a reference to God. We want a permanent reference to God. Scholars have differed on why David was not actually allowed to build the temple. Um, we know that he had sin. We know that he had sin with Bathsheba and probably many more that God was um, not through giving him consequences for. But we also know that David was a man of war. He himself a soldier. Remember when he was fighting and put someone else on the front lines and got them killed. So he's a man of war and the temple was to be a place of rest and peace. The warring is over, the rest has come. And so the privilege of building this temple was given to his son Solomon. It was built on Mount Moriah, which is the place that they understood that Isaac was attempted, the, the sacrificial um, moment with, with Abraham and Isaac. It's the exact spot. There was a lot of conversation about that spot. That spot is holy in itself, and it became holier still because, the God, because God built a temple there. There's another temple, a rebuilt temple. Uh, sometimes it's called Zerubbabel's, not because he built it, but that he, it was during his reign, and um, that was a modest rebuild, and then there's the great temple, Herod, which, so we're gonna break this down and go little by little. All right, this is Solomon's temple. It has a lot of the same components as the tabernacle. It has a, a courtyard, it has a place for the holy things, and has the place for the holy of holy things. Um, it remained here a long time, it was, dedicated uh, in about 957 BC. Now you remember we're gonna count backwards, so we're gonna get, our numbers are gonna get smaller as we get closer to now. So 957 uh, BC, and it lasted for about 420 years. So it was a substantial resting temple. Nothing here in this country seems to last 400 years. I know no appliance in my cabinet seems to last four years. My house certainly won't last 400 years, but this temple was built to last, and it had a lot of the same elements that you have, are seeing in the tabernacle. There are a few other things, places for um, water to flow, but it still faces the east, and that is it opens to the east, all doors open to the east. That's so the Israelites could look out and see the rising sun. 
look through those, through those curtains and see the rising sun. There were many attacks over the decades, over the centuries on the temple, and what do you think happened when a marauding um, enemy would come in and see gold and copper and overlays and fine linen? Yes, they would, they would take what they could get. We do not even know where the Ark of the Covenant is right now. I don't think Indiana Jones knows either. About 640, we stopped hearing about it. We don't know that it, if it was hidden from those who would have taken it and lost, you know, lost because it was hidden, or it was stolen or repurposed in some way. In order for an enemy to take over a place that was sacred, one of the things that they would do was to steal things, and the other thing they would do is to defile the space to make it unholy for you. And there's a fair amount of that going on all through this, the history of the Israelites. N not, a, not necessarily a peaceful place. Um, like I told you, this second temple called Zerubbabel's temple, um, the uh, Israelites have been exiled and they're coming back and they're gonna try to rebuild their temple. And I would say this looks like a home improvement that I might do. <laughs> It certainly did not match Solomon's temple, but it was being worked on for many years. Nehemiah came back to the city and saw it in ruins and began to work on the, the, the um, gate around it, the walls around it. This is all about the same time. But trouble was going to last there as well. In 458, um, Nehemiah comes back and fixes the, the walls in 52 days, but in 320, um, Israel, Jerusalem is captured by a guy named Ptolemy Soder. 314, the city is taken, taken by Antichicus the Great. 301, it's captured by Ptolemy Epiphanes. 170, Jerusalem is captured by Antichus Epiphanes. And I want you to spell all those names. My point is that in the next 200 years, it's not a peaceful place again. There's a lot of marauding, there's a lot of taking over. And then in 170, Antichicus murders the Jews, plunders Jerusalem, and here's what I'm talking about, defiled. He offers a pig on the altar and carries off the temple tre treasures. And worship and sacrifice are halted. In 166, Judas Maccabee leads a revolt that gets, gets the temple back, and they cleanse it and restore it. And that's when the miracle of lights and the burning oils is... Uh, referenced. That is an extra biblical reference for those of us who do not have a uh, Jewish Bible. It's in the book of Maccabees and also some other authors like Josephus um, affirm this. All right, so again in 164 though, Jerusalem is besieged. In 141, um, Roman fortresses conquer. 126, another besieging. 65, another besieging. In, 19, in uh, 63 BC, Jerusalem is captured by a Roman named General Pompey who enters the Holy of Holies and is disappointed to find it empty. And then in 40 BC, we are captured again. But in about, um, about the time of Jesus, um, beginning with 20 BC, and we know Jesus is somewhere in the zero range or in the one range, or about the time that Jesus is living, there's a guy named Herod. Raise your hand if you've heard the name Herod. Raise your hand if you're sure which Herod I'm talking about. Well, I'm talking about Herod the Great, of course. Herod the Great is the first Herod. He's the one in Matthew 2 who is 
murdering the innocents at Jesus' time. So this is concurrent with Jesus' life. He began this uh, building process and it lasted for 46 years. In about 54 BC, the temple had, treasury had been plundered and so it took a long time to earn this. Now Herod is actually of Jewish heritage, but he's, he's not a religious Jew and he is a very opportunistic um, politician who, whoever is in power, his affinity, his affinity goes in that direction. And during this time, he's the governor of this region and he's managing the Jews and he wants to manage the Jews to their thriving so that he looks good and probably has some uh, spiritual roots there as well. So he makes a temple to beat all temples. It's the biggest. He's got the biggest temple. And he does so for mainly political reasons, but you can see the elements of the first temple are also still there but he's added courtyards and so. I'm gonna read a few things to you. The area of the Temple Mount was doubled and surrounded by a wall with gates. The temple was raised, enlarged, and faced with white stone. The new temple square served as a gathering place and its porticos sheltered merchants and money changers. That bring up anything in your mind? A stone fence and a rampart surrounded the consecrated area forbidden to Gentiles. The temple proper began on the east with the court of women. Do you see the court of women? Oh, there it is. Um, each side of that gate, each side had a gate and each corner had a chamber and the court was named for a surrounding balcony on which women could observe the annual celebration of Sukkoth or the festival of wheats. This is a gathering festival. We hear about this in the New Testament and in the Old. The western gate of the court, approached by a semicircular staircase, led to the court of the Israelites. So we've got a private entrance for the Israelites. Surrounding the inner sanctuary, the court of priests contained the sacrificial altar and the copper laver for priestly ablutions. The court was itself surrounded by a wall with broken gates on either side, and you can see them toward the bottom. The Herodian temple was again the center of Israelite life. It was not only the focus of religious ritual, but a repository of the Holy Scriptures and other national literature and the meeting place of the Sanhedrin, which is the high court of Jewish law. All right, so we, we know about the Sanhedrin and where they're, they're meeting. This is, this is like the Supreme Court of Judaism and they meet here in the temple. Um, this, this is the... Um, not the White House, but uh, the Washington DC of, um, of uh, Judaism, and this is where everything is happening. This is where in Jesus' life we saw him being dedicated at the temple. This is an actual picture, I got a good shot. Um, you remember this, the people that were waiting in the temple to, to greet him had been waiting their whole life and here Jesus is dedicated in this temple. This is the temple at, at age 12 that Jesus goes back and his parents lose him on that long trek and they say, where were you? And he says, I had to be in my father's house. This is the father's house that he was in and this is the temple where you know he cleared the money changers tables who were taking advantage of people who are offering sins to cover their um, to cover their guilt that may or may not have been pure and may, whose prices have may have been gouged. And then of course we do know that this is also the temple that Jesus said, if you tear down this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. Which you have to understand how crazy that would have sounded based on the fact that it took 46 years to build. It took 46 years to build. And here's this man, whatever, facing these 
in incredible structures with excellent craftsmanship, saying that he's gonna tear it down and build it with three days. It makes sense now because the temple actually was torn down. AD 70, Jerusalem was sacked, the Romans took it over, and all that is remaining today is one wall, the Western Wall, which is also called the Wailing Wall. The temple has not been rebuilt. That's a long time ago, is it not? 70 AD to now? Why has the temple not been rebuilt? Well, part of the reason is that the requirements of the temple being built is that there is peace. Because remember, this permanent home was to be a place of rest and peace, and peace with your surrounding is one of the tenets of being able to build the, the temple. And it had to be managed by the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin does not exist right now, and the Sanhedrin had to be people who were of verified mosaic lineageship, which nobody can verify that anymore. So those are among the reasons the temple has not been rebuilt. And when the temple was rebuilt, sacrifices ceased, which is why when I ask the question, why aren't any of my modern Jewish friends talking about sacrifices? Because there are none to talk about. And modern Jews will say, and even Jews shortly after that time would say the sacrifice that God wants is our confession, is our prayers, is our service. And those are the sacrifices that they um, offer God during their worship. Now where do people worship today? Do they worship in the temple? Some people say I go to temple. But um, Jews, Orthodox Jews, who are uh, well aware of what the word temple means will, will not use that word to discuss the gathering space that they go to because it does not contain those elements we just discussed. No sacrifices are happening. So the better word is to say synagogue or if you're a, a Hasidic Jew, an Orthodox Jew of a certain sect, you might, you might call it the shul, which is a Yiddish word for the place of learning. So um, those are some of the points I've already made. Um, yes, in modern Ju Judaism. Okay, so a little bit about modern Judaism. You can find this out online easy enough, but I never had, so today I did, and here you go. There are about three main sects of Judaism. There are the or Orthodox, there's the conservative and there are the reform. They might call them branches, we might call them denominations. The Orthodox are the most conservative, despite the name conservative, they're not. The Orthodox are most orthodox about following the rules to the T. And if you've been to Brooklyn and you've seen the Hasidic community, you'll see people who are orthodox about, about following the Torah to the T. Now mind you, all those 600 odd uh, laws are not the two stone tablets anymore, it's the big scroll of the Torah. There's plenty to adhere to and it takes a lot of energy to do so. They are a very tight-knit community. They don't mix uh, in the outside world, especially the Hasidics. Um, it means uh, being pious. Uh, they often have a lot of children, larger than average families, and their offspring are statistically more likely to remain observant Jews. You can see, train up a child in the way he should go. Um, off that branch is the conservative Judaism. They are another major uh, movement of Judaism. They represent about a midpoint on the spectrum from reform, which is the least, which is the most liberal or the least um, orthodox. Um, they have innovations like they can drive to synagogue on Shabbat, on, on the Sabbath day, but you can't drive anywhere else. There are nuances, there are things about the conservative um, uh, interpretation of the Torah that says, we accept the binding nature of the Jewish law, but we 
but we also know that the law can change with the times. That's a conservative movement. And about 30%, 18% of Americans are, are conservative, but 30% in the largest affiliation, or 35%, uh, identify as reformed Jews. It's a major um, movement of Judaism that believes the Jewish law was inspired, but you can choose what to follow. And this is what I see mostly in my Jewish friends. So I don't see yarmulkes or head coverings and I'm not seeing um, a strict adherence of the Shabbat and that sort of thing. There isn't any restriction on women and men mixing. There is intermarriage and so forth. Now beyond reform, it gets more and more liberal. So you've got the re reconstructionism. Um, it doesn't believe in a personal deity at all. And it believes that the Jewish law was created by man. But here's my next question. How do you get to be a rabbi in a religion that doesn't believe in your religion? Who ordains you and upon what are you being ordained? I find this to be very interesting. I think we can see this in our own um, experience as Christians. There are churches in which Jesus is not the centerpiece, even though they call themselves Christians. Little Christs. So if you don't believe in the Christ, how are you a Christian? And if you don't believe in the personal deity or, or the one true God, how is it that you are a Jew? But there are humanistic, uh, there is humanistic Judaism, which is basically um, a Zionist movement or a movement of political and uh, genetic affiliation. And when after 1948, after the Second World War, when there was a, a, a strain to get our homeland back for the people of Israel, it was mostly people who were looking for a political or humanistic reestablishing re in Jerusalem that went back not people of, of, of deep religious um, thinking, which is why the Hasidics, the most orthodox, are not there because they have a different sense of the, of the homeland and the use of the Temple Mount. So you know that the Temple Mount uh, is, is now owned uh, by the Muslims and that it is a holy, holy, holy place for Jews and Christians and Muslims because Muslims believe that is the exact spot where Muhammad came from Mecca and nightly visits and met with, with Moses face to face on the Temple Mount. This is where he believes he got his divine inspiration and so they've built a commemorative place for him, um, the, the Dome on the Rock. That is not a mosque, that is a commemorative space for where um, Muhammad met Moses. However, there is also a mosque on that site and there is no Jewish temple. So, you know what, here's the deal. History is interesting, right? And somebody said to me before I came up here, you know what, it's important to be a Christian to know, just to know a lot of information. Of course, he was being facetious. And when I came to you today, I thought, you know, I, I'm standing here as a teacher, and so I wanna give you information, but the information is only as good as the person giving it to us, and the person giving it to us is really good. And his name is Jesus. And while perhaps the Jews didn't see the template very clearly, I can understand why I wouldn't. Perhaps it would've looked like an Ikea pattern to me. I would've thought, where is Jesus in this? Or how is this about my worship? Or what does killing an animal have to do with my relationship with God? But Jesus proved to us that he is the image of all of these things. He's the Messiah in the law. He demonstrates provision and protection and his covenantal love. He is the Messiah in the tabernacle, leading and dwelling his people, even in unrest and conquest. He is the Messiah in the temple, a royal space, a object of our royal worship. He is a place of instruction and ultimately a place of rest. And we even see the Messiah in the absence of temple because what did Jesus say to us? 
Your bodies are the temple of my Holy Spirit. I am waiting for the fulfillment. I am patient, long-suffering, that none should perish because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. The Shekinah glory is available to us in the process of Jesus through the veil that was torn into relationship with God. That's why all these images are interesting to study because every time you look, you see more. And you don't just see more rules, you see more love more provision, more protection, more ways, more knowledge, more understanding, more opportunities to practice, even more opportunities to have grace for our Jewish brothers and sisters whom Jesus was and desires for. His perfect pattern in Hebrews 8.5 says, they serve it as a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern I show you on the mountain. And at the end of Exodus, we say they did, and it was good. The pattern was to instruct us. He's the perfect completion, Hebrews 8, 6. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. The old one looks like this. The new one is the new and improved Better than Herod's temple. Better than Herod's temple. Better than the biggest, widest, most glorious 46, 146 years to build temple. Perfect completion. Here's just a few of the things that came to mind. He's the bread of everlasting life. He's the purification of our sin. He's the blood of our sacrifice. He's the cleanser of our sins. He's the courier of our prayers. He's the lamb who was slain for us. He's the law written on our hearts. He's our good shepherd with life-giving staff. He is he, it is he who gives mercy. He is the one who tears the veil between God and us. He is the treasure that can't spoil or be stolen. He is the eternal light of the world. He is the flow of life-giving water. And he is the image of the glory of God who dwelt among us. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are better. Help us, Lord, not to strive for anything that is less than you. Even images of you can become idols. And Lord, we don't want any object of our faith to be more important than the person of our faith. Thank you, Lord, for starting in us, what you're going to finish, what you're going to carry on to completion until that day of Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.